Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With Wings Productions presents The Man with a Storm in His Eyes, a Skylark special miniseries written exclusively for the Skylark Bell podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Oliveri. Before I begin, if you haven't listened to the first installment of this story, I strongly suggest you hit the pause button on this one and go listen to Volume 1, or the story won't make much sense. In last week's episode, we met Marie, who agreed to take on a job house-sitting for twin sisters Florence and Winifred over the holiday weekend, and will help care for their elderly tenant, Mr. Holcomb, who lives upstairs. When we left Marie, she had just exited Mr. Holcomb's apartment after Christmas Eve dinner went awry as a thunderous storm rolled in. Now, get settled in, grab a blanket and a warm drink, And let's dive back into the story, shall we? I must have fallen asleep at some point, because the next time I glanced at the fire, it had been rendered to a pile of glowing embers, and a small stream of sunlight was coming through a crack in the floral chenille fabric of the drapes. I got up, neatly folded and piled the blankets, and pulled the drapes open to let the full force of the sun shine into the room. A cloud of dust lifted from the drapes and swirled into the air before slowly settling onto the surrounding surfaces. In the bright light of day, the space didn't seem nearly so threatening, and I began to feel ridiculous about overreacting to the phone call the night before. The line was crackly. I probably misheard. In all likelihood, it was a wrong number, or a prank call. Merry Christmas, Marie, I said out loud to the empty flat as I padded down the hall to the kitchen. I cooked some eggs and toast, poured myself a glass of orange juice, and put the kettle on for tea. I eyed the tea canisters on the shelf above the cookbooks, but decided to save that for the evening. I washed up my dishes, changed clothes, brushed my teeth, then decided to go upstairs to check on Mr. Holcomb. I climbed the narrow stairs and was about to knock on the door when it swung open, revealing Mr. Holcomb's silhouette in the hallway. I told you my hearing was good, he uttered before I could ask how he knew I was there. Merry Christmas, he added without any merriment in his voice. He looked exhausted. 
I opened my mouth to ask what had happened the night before, but he had already started walking down the hallway on velvet feet. I followed him to the kitchen where two cups of steaming coffee and a plate of biscuits sat waiting on the table. How did you... I let the question trail, unable to wrap my brain around his impeccable timing. My senses are above average. I knew you were coming upstairs before you did, he replied with a wink. I noticed with wonder that when he winked, the clouds in his other eye swirled faster for a moment, as though a gust of wind was passing through. We sat at the table in silence. I became self-conscious of the crunching of biscuits in the quiet little kitchen, and was about to begin a conversation when Mr. Holcomb beat me to it. I have a gift for you, he said out of the blue. I stared at him with a mixture of surprise and confusion. I had never seen him leave his flat. How in the world did he manage to find a gift for me? He turned to take a small box off the counter and handed it to me. I freed the box from the blue velvet ribbon wrapped around it and gently lifted its lid. Inside was a fine china teacup with matching saucer, both white but painted with a black floral pattern that bordered on ink blots. There was something very Winifred-esque about them, and I briefly wondered if this was a re-gift situation. But it didn't matter to me. I was touched by the thoughtfulness of his gesture. This is lovely, Mr. Holcomb, and so very kind of you. Thank you. I'm afraid I have nothing to offer in return. I didn't realize. Not to worry, dear. I wasn't expecting anything at all. I simply wanted to show you some appreciation for keeping me company at this time of year, he replied. His stormy eyes took on a darker tone then, almost like the deep, heavy gray of a rain cloud about to unleash its tears on the world. Well, I shall leave you to your own devices for the rest of the day. Nothing personal, I simply prefer to be alone at Christmas. I frowned, but I kissed with a polite nod as I rose from my chair. I insist on bringing you a tray with Christmas dinner, though. I'll leave it by your door around 6 p.m., okay? I asked. He smiled and gave me a nod, understanding my need to reciprocate the kindness of his gift. I shall see you tomorrow morning, then. My question was tentative. I still hadn't sorted out what had happened the night before. Yes, I shall cook us a nice Boxing Day breakfast. Now go on. Enjoy your time downstairs. There is much to read, much to discover, much to learn, he said. Had his eyes been clear, they'd have been staring into my soul then. I looked at him intently. His eyes suddenly seemed lighter, almost white and feathery. There was a calm to them. And I got a shiver down my spine as I realized he was attempting to convey a message. I took the box containing Mr. Holcomb's gift and made my way back to the sister's flat. I gently pulled the cup and saucer out of the box and placed them on the counter. It was here that I finally noted the black flowers were painted in a swirling pattern, eerily reminiscent of Mr. Holcomb's cloudy eyes. I was intimately familiar with the kitchen and sitting rooms already, so I decided it was time to explore the rest of the flat. I first went down the hall and hesitantly stepped into Winifred's room. 
I perused the items on her dresser. They were few. An empty perfume bottle, a hairbrush with long strands of dark hair tangled into it, a collection of multicolored glass bottles and vials that appeared to contain various tinctures and what looked like animal teeth. Curiouser and curiouser. Winifred was definitely the creepy sister. Laying askew atop her nightstand was a copy of Daphne du Maurier's The House on the Strand. I picked up the book and read the synopsis on the back. It had to do with time travel and such. I placed it back down, making a mental note to get myself a copy. I found the idea of time travel fascinating. I exited Winifred's room and let myself into Florence's living quarters. Her space was much larger and included a sitting area. I ran my hand along the wood of the antique love seat, then down its striped salmon-colored satin fabric. I walked to her dresser and noticed the top drawer was slightly opened. I peeked in and saw it was filled with handwritten notes and illustrations on various bits of paper. I was about to pull it open further to explore the contents when I heard a commotion outside the window. What was that? I asked the empty room. I walked to the window and looked out to see a group of boys running down the street at breakneck speed. My eyes followed them until they were out of sight, then darted back to the sidewalk. Sitting just outside the window, quietly staring up at me with stunning yellow eyes, was a kitten. Its velvety gray fur was covered in mud. Clearly the boys had been mistreating it. Concerned for the kitten's safety, I rushed down the hallway, grabbing the antique key to the front door off the entryway console as I whizzed by, and flew down the steps to the sidewalk. Thankfully, the kitten was still there. From this proximity, I could see it had a blue velvet ribbon for a collar, with a small silver tag dangling from it. I approached cautiously, not wanting to scare it away, and crouched down while reaching my hand out. The kitten immediately got up and walked toward me, pushing its little head against my palm, its friendliness completely unhindered by the abuse it had just suffered at the hands of those unruly boys. Hello there, small friend, I cooed, running my hand down the softness of its back. I used my other hand to grab hold of the tag. Jones, I read. Is that your name or your family's name? the kitten remained silent, its amber eyes transfixed on me as I carefully bent down to scoop it up. I cradled the kitten in my arms as I made my way back into the sister's flat. It took a few tries opening various cupboards, but I eventually found two shallow bowls. I filled one with water and placed a few pieces of cooked chicken from the fridge into the other one. There you go, Jones. Merry Christmas, I told him as I placed the bowls on the tile floor. He meowed at me, and I told myself he was wishing me a Merry Christmas in return. I didn't know then it wasn't going to be a Merry Christmas for him at all. I gave Jones a bath as best I could in the large porcelain sink, then settled him on a pillow by the stove to dry. I spent the rest of the day in the cozy kitchen cooking and baking. First, I prepared a hearty vegetable soup with cheddar and chive biscuits, then some lentil fritters using my nan's recipe from memory. 
and finally a rum raisin cake with homemade custard for dessert. I put together a tray for Mr. Holcomb and left it by his door, promptly at 6 p.m. as promised, then came back downstairs to eat. I found a festive tartan tablecloth and some tapered candles with accompanying pewter candle holders on the bottom shelf of the pantry. It's just you and me, Jones, I said to the cat. Might as well make the most of it. I spooned a bit of custard onto a plate for him. His golden eyes glowed with gratitude as he lapped it up. We finished dinner and I tidied the kitchen, then wandered aimlessly about the flat, eventually landing in the reading room. I perused the books housed on the multitude of shelves and finally chose Alice in Wonderland. I plopped myself in the leather chair stationed in front of the massive oak desk in the center of the room and lost myself down the rabbit hole alongside Alice for a couple of hours. Eventually, I tore myself away from the pages to give my eyes a break. I set the book down on the desktop and pushed the chair back slightly to take a look at the drawers. The top drawer had a keyhole, which of course made me desperately want to open it. I scoured the items strewn on top of the desk and eventually found a small key with a black satin ribbon tied in a bow around the top of it. I turned the key in the lock and heard the satisfying click that meant my curiosity would soon be satiated. Alas, behind the barrier of the lock, the drawer contained only an assortment of pens and blank notepads. I moved on to the top right drawer and found a collection of folders detailing much of the history of the building, including the original owners and a collection of past tenants. Fascinating. I had done so much reading already, though, I decided to save this for the following day. I shifted to the left and pulled that top drawer open. At first I thought it was empty, but just as I was about to close it, I noticed there was a black folder laying on the very bottom, almost imperceptible. The folder was wedged so tightly into the bottom of the drawer I had to use my thumbnail to pry it free. I didn't immediately realize it, but the mystery I was about to discover would call into question everything I thought I knew about Mr. Holcomb and the twins. I lifted the folder out of the drawer and a series of newspaper clippings fell out onto the desk. I turned on the antique desk lamp, picking up one of the clippings, and held it under the light to get a better look. Young salesman from Edgewick goes missing, read the headline. Despite my tired eyes, I dove in, completely enthralled by the mystery. It wasn't long before my breath caught in my throat. The article went on to explain that a young man had gone missing after leaving for work the Tuesday morning prior. He was last seen in a charcoal-colored wool suit and carrying a brown satchel. His name? Russell James Holcomb. I let the piece of paper fall from my hand to the surface of the hardwood desktop. I stared at the portrait of the young man. With a little imagination, it wasn't hard to see the resemblance with the old, cloud-eyed man living upstairs. My brow knit as I tried to come to terms with this discovery. Mr. Holcomb had gone missing as a young man. Was anyone aware of his whereabouts now? I sifted through the other newspaper clippings in search of answers. 
most of them, were from the same era as the first one, days to weeks after Mr. Holcomb first disappeared. But one of them stood out. It was written nearly a decade later, and was part of a collection of stories about people who had mysteriously vanished without a trace, never to be seen or heard from again. I had half a mind to march upstairs and ask Mr. Holcomb what this was all about. But it dawned on me then that perhaps he didn't want to be found. Perhaps he had good reason for never speaking up about his whereabouts. From the news articles, it didn't sound like he was the type to have done anything nefarious. I was desperately curious about his story, but knew better than to go charging in with questions. The grandfather clock in the corner of the room struck twice. It was 2 a.m. already, and I had promised Mr. Holcomb I would join him for breakfast in a few hours. I wandered back into the living room and settled on the sofa with my trusty pile of blankets. Jones hopped onto the couch as well and curled up on top of my feet. I fell asleep to the steady rumble of his purring as the fire in the fireplace slowly waned to embers. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this second installment of The Man with a Storm in His Eyes. Be sure to check in next week for the next part of the story. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating or a review. They're both greatly appreciated. You can also support my work by subscribing to Patreon. Patreon supporters get early access to ad-free episodes, digital downloads of my music, and so much more. It's the first place I share any of my creations. However, if you prefer not to subscribe, but would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so via your podcast platform. Any and all financial support is greatly appreciated. Once again, thank you for listening. I'm Melissa Oliveri, writer, composer, and producer of The Skylark Bell Podcast.